Hebrews chapter 11, as we continue in this 11-part series called The Life of Faith. 11 weeks in Hebrews 11. This is the second part. If you weren't here last week, you want to get a hold of that. Uh, either go to our website and you could download it for free. We have the video on the website as well. You could go to iTunes and get the audio or the video for free. Or you could stop by the CD table and pick up a CD or DVD. But if you weren't here last week, you want to get a hold of that. It was an introduction to faith and faith as trust. And it really lays a foundation for Christianity and especially our study of this chapter. And so this is part two out of 11. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that the study of it would be profitable this morning. Lord, we open up our hearts now, and we say together that we trust you with our hearts. And we ask that you'd build faith into our lives. We are called to be the people of faith. And we believe, but we ask that you'd help our unbelief, that you'd strengthen us in this area, Lord. That our lives, because of an impartation by you of fresh faith to us, would be more vibrant Lord, more on fire for you, more effective in your hands, Lord, that we'd really catch the vision for worship and for mission and for the glory of God. And we would become a people less self-absorbed and more God-absorbed. We'd be less concerned with our own stuff and more concerned with your glory. These are faith issues, so help us, Lord. We believe, but help our unbelief and build great faith into us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at Abel this morning as the first example of great faith in the scriptures, and the first one included here in Hebrews chapter 11. And this first story comes on the heels of the great failure of Adam and Eve. And as we spoke of last week, that failure was a failure of faith. It was a failure to trust. They were in relationship with God, and they had God's word, and that was enough for them to trust, but they failed to trust. And the opening three chapters of Genesis can be somewhat disheartening after that great creation account of God looking and saying, it's good and very good. And then Adam and Eve come along and make a big mess by simply not trusting the Lord. Well, one of their kids, Abel, had a great moment of faith and we're going to look at it this morning. And This first example in all of scripture of an authentic life of faith has to do with how we worship. Okay, now that's a cue. That's a cue that worship is very important to God. Therefore, it ought to be very important to you and I because the first vignette, this first story of great faith has to do with how we worship. Worship, people, is the most important thing. You understand? Because it is in worship that God is glorified. And we exist for the glory of God. We were made by God and we were made for God. We rebelled, we distrusted, we mistrusted, we fell away from God. But God is a missionary God and so he sent his son Jesus Christ to save us. And he came and draped himself in humanity and he lived a perfect life because we couldn't. And he died an atoning death on the cross so that we wouldn't pay the price for our sins. And he rose from the dead to give us brand new life. And when we receive that by faith, we enter into that newness of life. And we realize now that our lives are no longer our own. And we are not allowed anymore to live for our own glory. You see, selfishness is left at the cross. At least it's supposed to be. 
Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let them pick up their cross and deny themselves. And so selfishness and self-absorption and the self-centered, egocentric life is to be left behind, repented of, forsaken when we come to Jesus. And what then comes most important to the Christian is the glory of God. That is the way it's supposed to be. Our lives are to be subsumed by and consumed with the glory of God. We're to pursue God's glory, to live for God's glory. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The first line to John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason we do missions, the reason Teresa and Merrill are down in Venezuela is for God's glory. We go and we share the gospel that humanity might be redeemed, that Jesus Christ might be adored and worshiped and exalted in all the nations. That is the order of things. That's how it goes. And so when we look at these great stories of faith in Hebrews 11, the first one has to do with how we worship, how we relate to the glory of God. Now, not how in the sense of form or style or liturgy. Have you ever noticed how the Bible has very little to say about that? That's a good thing. The Bible says that we ought to worship, but it says very little about how we ought to do it. That's good because people are different. And that's why there's different churches. That's why you come to this church and worship here looks one way and you go to another one and it looks totally different. So when we talk about how we worship, we're not talking about form, style, or liturgy. Rather, we're talking about how as in the condition of the heart. That's the crux of it. That's the most important thing. Worship is an issue of the heart and a matter of faith. And worship is only authentic when the heart is authentic, when the heart is truly yielded to God, subsumed by and consumed with the glory of God. And to live a life of worship like that, it takes faith. It's a matter of faith. It requires trust. And if worship and the glory of God are the most important things, then you and I as God's people should always seek to bring our best before God. Right? That should be intuitive to the redeemed mind. We should always seek to bring our best before God. Now that takes faith. That takes trust. And we'll unpack that in just a moment. But you understand that Anything we do in life must be mingled with faith and done by faith in order to be pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says that, and we spoke about it last week, but we'll read it right now. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so in the Christian life, Everything has got to be done by faith with an attitude of trusting in God. Our decisions need to be decisions that display the fact that we trust in God. We need to begin to think in terms of trusting God with our identity, with our relationships, with all the stuff that we do. Faith is trust. Without trust, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we realize that we make faith decisions every single day. We make faith decisions about our finances. We make faith decisions about our sexuality. We make faith decisions about recreation. We make faith decisions about our business. 
We make faith decisions about relationships. And we make faith decisions about our hearts, whether or not we're really going to trust God with our hearts. All these things require daily decisions that are to be based on trusting God according to who he is and what he has said. Remember from last week, it's not merely based upon knowledge, but rather upon who God is and what he has said in his word. And we can only please God in these various aspects of our life if we're trusting God with them, for them. And if we're not trusting the Lord in these areas, making faith decisions, then we're not pleasing the Lord in our general behavior. Now, Abel pleased the Lord. And we have this little story in chapter 11, verse 4. Let's look at it. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So here we have this little verse about Abel, which is so important. It says that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. He offered to God a better sacrifice. As we begin to think about sacrifice, I want us to understand this act that Abel performed as a simple act of adoration. That's the right way to look at it. It was an act of adoration. It was a work of worship. The law had not yet been given at Sinai. The Levitical law didn't exist. God hadn't yet told his people, when you sin this way, then you need to sacrifice thus and so. So this was not a sacrifice, a penance, so to speak, or of atonement. It wasn't a sin offering or any of those things. It was an unsolicited, authentic authentic act of adoration and work of worship that flowed from the heart of Abel. He offered a better sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? Well, a real basic definition of sacrifice is this. An act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. Notice that a sacrifice has got to be something of value. And it's something that we give up because there is something or someone of greater value who is more worthy. Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Now, that word better is important for us to understand in the Greek language. The Greek word is pleon, and it means more. Literally, a literal and good translation is that Abel offered a more sacrifice. Not more in quantity, but in quality. Qualitatively speaking, it was a more sacrifice. The New American Standard translates that word better. It was a better sacrifice. That's okay. The King James and the New King James adds the word excellent, says it was a more excellent sacrifice, but the adjective excellent isn't there in the Greek. The English Standard Version and the New Living Translation add the word acceptable a more acceptable sacrifice, but that adjective isn't there in the Greek. The only adjective there in the Greek is pleon, more. Abel offered a more sacrifice. I want us to remember that. It was a more sacrifice. We'll begin to understand that in a moment. 
But based on this sacrifice, this act of adoration, this work of worship, based on this gift that he brought to the Lord, God's assessment of the man was that he was righteous. It's true both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that one is only made righteous by faith. God has never changed the way that he saved people. He always saves people by faith and looking to or back to the Messiah. But this was an act of faith and God declared him to be righteous because of it. In fact, Jesus says of Abel in Matthew 23, 35, he calls him righteous Abel. It wasn't merely the gift or the sacrifice itself. It was the heart behind it. It was the attitude of the man that caused him to be reckoned righteous by God. And so we ask ourselves, why was Abel's sacrifice better? And why was it by faith? What is the story of faith here that we can imitate? Well, let's look at the original story. Go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and the account here that is referenced in Hebrews 11, we'll start reading in verse 1 of Genesis 4. Genesis is at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 4, 1, it says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time, that means at the time of harvest, when the days of of, uh, the stuff being grown was over, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part also, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Here we begin to see that there was something in the heart of Cain that just wasn't right. Evidenced by the fact that he was angry. Evidenced by the fact that the Lord gave him this warning that, whoa, whoa, watch out, Cain. What's going on in your corazón? What's going on in your heart? Sin is crouching at your door. His desire is for you. That word in the Hebrew means a desire to rule over, to dominate. Its desire is for you, but you must be master over it. Something has gone awry in the heart of Cain very shortly after the fall of man. And it's reflected in his worship. And then it says in verse 8, And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So he didn't heed the Lord when the Lord said, watch out, sin is crouching at your door, wants to dominate you, wants to seduce you, 
wants to bring you into a destructive lifestyle, destructive pattern of living. Didn't heed the Lord. He fell to that temptation. He killed his brother. He is the human inventor of murder, Cain is. This is the first murder. I would say that Satan is really the father of murder. But Cain, within humanity, introduced it here and killed his brother. Now, verses 3 and 4 again. I'll read from the New Living Translation this time. It's real clear. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. I want you to notice, and and this is really where it all hinges. This is why this is a big deal. Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock. Okay, now what is a firstling? We often say in Christianese or in Bible talk, from the first fruits. What is a firstling? Well, look it up in the Oxford American Dictionary. Very simple. It says, the first agricultural produce or animal offspring of a season. So presumably, this is the first time that Cain had ever had a harvest. The first time that Abel's flocks had ever given forth children. And it says that Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. And notice that it does not say that about Cain and what he brought. He simply brought some of the harvest. The Holy Spirit's very intentional in the words that are in and not in Scripture. He brought some of his harvest, but Abel brought the first fruits, the firstlings of his. And the first fruits, the firstlings... Throughout Scripture then, here's the first mention. Subsequently, throughout Scripture, the first fruits are what God's people are encouraged to bring before Him. It is pragmatic and yet symbolic of bringing our best before God. It is literally and actually bringing your best before God and it's symbolic of the whole life of worship and all that that entails, bringing our very best before God. Now that requires faith. That requires trust. The reason it does is threefold. Here's the first point. The reason why that's a faith act, bringing the first fruits, the first from the flock before God, is because simply it's giving God priority. It's an act of faith, it's an act of trust because it's giving God priority. You know, the first thing that you do in something or with something says a lot about your heart. You ever thought about that? The first thing that you ever do. Hey, you just won the Super Bowl, what are you going to do? I'm going to Disneyland. They were paid to say that, but it was supposed to fool you into thinking at this great moment, the first thing that's just bounding forth from my heart is Disneyland, I want to go to Disneyland. But in reality, in real life, the thing that you give priority to reveals, betrays, exposes your heart. I mean, it's just cut and dry. It's very simple. The first thing that you do, the default, the go-to, this really exposes what's in the heart of a man or a woman. And so this is a faith act, Abel's act here, bringing the first fruits before God, because it's giving God priority. Simply a matter of priority. Putting God first. And what we start to see now in this series is that the life of faith is a life that puts God first. There it is. 
The life of faith is a life that puts God first, gives God priority in the totality of life. We are not called as Christians to compartmentalize our lives. They're to be splayed open, laid open before God. He's to be the Lord of our whole lives. And he's to have priority, which means worship in every area of our lives. The second reason why this was a faith act is because Abel was trusting God for the rest. Because what would happen for him here on out was an unknown. Okay, so there were a few calves, there were a few little lambies, whatever the animals were, we're not told. And he brought the first to the Lord. And so that meant that he had to trust the Lord now for the rest. Because there's always that unknown element. And remember, faith has to do with the future and the unseen. And when we bring the first to God, it means we're trusting him for the rest of it. It's like Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things shall be added unto you. You know, bad weather could easily destroy a crop. And so it's a real gamble to bring the first bit of harvest to the Lord and give it to the Lord, and there it goes. I love watching Little House on the Prairie. It's one of my all-time favorite shows, and we watch it with our kids, and uh, uh, on occasion there's some good faith lessons in there. Other times they really mess it up, but it's a cool show, you know. I like it. We bought all the DVDs. We got all the seasons, and I was watching it with my uh, kids recently, and there was one where uh, Pa Ingalls, you know, he worked real hard to to grow the crops and everything like that. Real hard to make it out on the frontier there and everything. And, and they were growing the crops and one night he <clears throat> heard the thunder and the lightning and the crowds clacked, cracked and he ran outside and there was a hailstorm, a huge hailstorm. And he threw on his hat and his jacket and he ran out to the crops and Ma Ingalls starts praying there in the house, you know, and little Mary's peeking through the window, little Laura's trying to get around and Pa's out there in the middle of the night trying to save the crop and he, comes in just before dawn, he lost the whole thing. I mean, he worked for months to grow this thing, months, and he lost the whole thing in one night to one storm. And for them on the frontier, that was their livelihood. You see, so there's always the unknown in life, isn't there? So if we commit the first of something to the Lord, we really are taking a risk, so to speak. But we don't see it as a risk, it's trust. It's faith. In the secular realm, whoa, you're risking it, dude. But in the life with Christ, it's trust. We're trusting God to provide the rest. And so we bring the first to the Lord. You know, you never know when a predator is going to come in and take from the flock. And you never know when recession is going to hit. You never know when your paycheck is going to decrease or go away. And so it really is an act of faith, an act of trust to give the first to the Lord. The third reason this was an act of faith is that it was against human nature. It was against human nature. You see, the hu- human nature is self-preservationist, right? It's, it's, it, we have this self-preservationist attitude. I got to look out for me. I got to make sure that I'm okay. And so I'll get my portion and then we'll talk about everything else. But you see, bringing the first fruits is a biblical concept. The first to the Lord. It's contrary to human nature. You see, human nature has a tendency to be safe as opposed to over and against being trusting. That's why this is an act of faith, an act of trust, because it wasn't necessarily safe, but it was trust. But human nature wants to be 
safe and preserve self. And human nature, generally speaking, is greedy. It really is. And so, if we're self-preservationistic in mindset or try to be safe as opposed to trust, then maybe you give later, but not not the first fruits. If you're greedy, then maybe you never give. But faith gives. It gives priority to God. It trusts God for the rest. And it goes against human nature. Proverbs makes it real explicit. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Notice it's worship. Honor the Lord from your wealth. Honor. It's worship. Honor the Lord. How? With your finances, from your wealth, your stuff, and from the leftovers, not what it says. It says, and from the first of all your produce. Now look at verse 10 as a promise. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That is an accompanying conditional promise. And it goes right along with our outline. Honor the Lord from your wealth, giving God priority so that your barns may be filled, trusting him for the rest. And we see that there is a foundation for that, a precept for that, a promise in scripture that when we honor God with the first of our produce, he will take care of the rest of things. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and the rest shall be added unto you. And that's a promise. Your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now see, that's counterintuitive to the unredeemed mind. That's contrary to human nature. They would say, well, let me fill up my barns first and then we'll talk about what we have left. Self-preservationistic in mindset. But Hebrews 11.6 says, it's impossible to please God without faith. And so unless it's done by faith, it's not pleasing to the Lord, therefore it's not worship. And then it says in the second part of Hebrews 11.6, He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, you must understand this fundamental truth about God, that he is not a taker, he's a giver. God is a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. You must understand that. And when you give to God, you will certainly fail to outgive God. You will fail to outgive God. He's a giver. Honor the Lord from your wealth in the first year produce so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So there is this concept in scripture inherent in the story of Abel here of giving to God in worship from our first fruits. And we now understand why that was a matter of faith. It was giving God priority. It was trusting God for the rest and it was contrary to human nature. What does it look like real practically for you and I in our daily lives? Well, let's take a very simple example of tithes and offerings. Let's not beat around the bush anymore. I think we know what we're headed toward here. (laughs) It's a normal part of the Christian life as laid out in scripture that we give to the Lord in tithes and offerings. We give directly to God and it is meant to be an act of worship. We can't miss that. When we give of our tithes and offerings, it is meant to be an act of worship. It is part of the worship service. It's part of the liturgy. It's part of the service of the church. When we come here, we come to worship. 
We worship by enjoying God. We worship in loving one another and experiencing the love of God. We worship in song. We worship by studying the word of God. We worship in giving. And then we go forth and we worship in mission. But giving is meant throughout scripture to be an act of worship. If it's not in your heart, then you are the one in error. If when the bag comes around, you're not worshiping, you are erring, understand, according to scripture, not my opinion. And so then what would it mean to bring the first fruits before the Lord? The firstling. Well, pragmatically now, practically speaking, it would mean that when you sit down to do your stuff, write your checks and and all that and pay your bills, you just got your paycheck. The first check that you write is to the Lord. That's what that would mean practically. Now, back then, they didn't have checks. They had crops and animals. But the first was to be given to the Lord. It was always the first. That is the act of faith. And so when the first check is to the Lord, that's an act of faith, especially in these times. It's an act of faith because it gives priority to God very pragmatically. And I think we need to be practical in our worship. I mean, I think it does something in the heart of a man or a woman when they sit down with a pile of bills here and the little paycheck here and says, well, the first check is going to the Lord. The tithe, which means 10%. The offering, which means above that. The tithes and offerings, whatever you give, is going to the Lord. Before I deal with the bills... Very practical, very consistent with Scripture. And it requires faith because who knows what's hidden in the bills nowadays? You know what I mean? What isn't faith is to pay all the bills, buy all your stuff, and say, oh, I got, I got a little bit left over. Going to take that to church on Sunday. Going to give that to the Lord. A little left over here. Here you go, Jesus. Boom. You know what? Better to just keep it. Better to just keep it. It wasn't an act of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. There was no trust in that. It was your leftovers. There's no trust in that. Better to keep it. Go get another iPod or something. Because it doesn't please the Lord unless it's an act of faith. I mean, literally, when a man or a woman sits down and says, I don't know how these finances are going to add up, but I'm going to give first to the Lord. And then the Lord makes a promise in Malachi chapter 3. It's the only time in all of Scripture that he says this. He says, test me on this, says the Lord. Test me. See if when you bring the tithes into the storehouses, if I don't open up the floodgates of heaven and bless you. That's a promise of Scripture. And uh, it's a bummer in the Christian life to miss out on that promise of God, to not experience that life of faith, that act of worship. Let's take another simple example, our time. There's an easy one. You know, time with God is meant to be the worship of God. And we are to spend time with God. I mean, we know that, right? The cross happened that we might be reconciled in, in relationship. Any relationship you have where you don't spend time is not a great relationship, Right? If I'm never at home with my wife and I just show up for dinner and just kind of 
You know, scarf and scram, not much relationship with there. There. If I don't spend any time with my kids, not a good relationship. Quite frankly, kids grow up messed up when they have dads that don't spend time with them. You see, relationship is predicated upon, dependent upon time spent. Jesus Christ died on the cross to bring us into relationship with God. Therefore, the Christian life, the life of faith, the life of worship dictates that we spend time with God. And so how do we do it? We do it by faith. We give it priority. We give God priority. We say, I don't, I don't have time. You trust God for the rest of the time, right? And that's counterintuitive. Martin Luther had this down so well, so well. He said, I am so busy today. I have so many things to do today. I must spend the first three hours in prayer. That's a quote. I mean, that's the life of faith. He was giving God priority, right? He was trusting God with all the things he had to do. And he was going against human nature that says, gotta go, gotta go, gotta run, gotta get it done. So many things to do today, I gotta spend the first three hours with the Lord. That's the life of faith. Now, these two things, our finances and our time, listen, are telltale. You can tell everything you ever wanted to know about a person's heart, passions, and priorities from the way they spend their money and the way they spend their time, period. You simply cannot argue with that. You'll learn everything you want to know about a person if you have full access to the way they spend their money and the way they spend their time. And what they give priority to in those things reveals who their God is. And if the priority in their finances is them and in their time is them, then they are their own God. If it's cars and guitars and surfboards and these things, then those are their gods. It's telltale. It's without fail. How a person spends their money and their time reveals who their God is. And as Christians, our God is Jesus Christ. And so our money and our time is to be prioritized accordingly. Turn to Mark chapter 12 as we see an illustration of this. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we'll start in verse, uh, verse 41. Mark twelve forty one. it says, <clears throat> speaking of Jesus, and he sat down opposite the treasury. He's in the temple now, okay? Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, which is where people came and gave their tithes and offerings, and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums, a lot of money. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. These small copper coins were the the least valuable Jewish money in circulation at the time. Verse 43 
and calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus was there in the temple observing how people were giving money. Again, how not in the sense of, was it debit or credit, cash or check? That's not what we're talking about. He wasn't doing that. But how as in their hearts, God looks upon the heart of the man, Scripture says. He was observing how. He was watching their hearts, but notice that it was easy to discern their hearts by the way they handled their finances. And he says in verse 43 that the poor widow put in more. There's the same Greek adjective that we read in Hebrews 11.4. Pleon, more. The poor widow gave a more sacrifice, just like Abel. She put in more. The poor widow gave a more sacrifice than all the others. Why did Jesus himself call it the more sacrifice? Because it required faith. You see, that was all that she had. Many commentators say that that's all she had to live on for the day. And if you understand first century Judaism and the social context, widows and their income and how they ate and how they were provided for is very sketchy in that day, very difficult. That's why the mandate in the New Testament is to visit widows and orphans in their distress. She gave in faith everything that she had to live on that day. The others, it says in verse 44, gave out of their surplus. She brought the first fruits, and not just the first fruits, but for her, all the fruit. Not everybody has to give all the fruit, but she did. God just asked for the first fruit, but she gave all the fruit. The great story of faith. The others gave out of the surplus. What does that mean? The leftovers. They had plenty, and they said, oh, I've got plenty for myself. I've got a little bit left. I'm going to the temple. I'm going to give it to the Lord. And though the hers was very, very small quantitatively, it was more pleon. It was more qualitatively. And Jesus sat there and said, this woman has done it right. She's given more than everybody else. And this teaches you and I that in every area of worship in our lives, we're to bring our best to God. That's what we need to take away from this. We need to bring our best before the Lord and not our leftovers. And it's weird, and I don't know how we got this way as Christians, but somehow, you know, Christianity has become this realm of leftovers. We give God our leftover time. We give our leftover money. When the church has a rummage show, we give them our leftover junk that nobody else would take. Somehow it's become the realm of leftovers. And when it comes to Christian service and people getting involved in doing children's ministry, well, if I have the extra time. Very few Christians nowadays are really making Jesus the priority of their lives. This is disheartening as we survey the land. And yet we're to bring our best before the Lord because now 
having been created by God for the glory of God, having once rebelled against that, and then being redeemed by the Son of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we now exist for His glory and not ourselves. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, it says in Corinthians. And so we are to bring our best before the Lord. And because hers... Her giving required faith. It required trust. How would she eat tomorrow? Because it required trust, it was authentic worship and not mere religion. The other guys, it was just religion. They brought some of the leftovers to the temple to give to God. That's religion. So a lot of people do. Hers was authentic worship because it required trust. And so we need to ask ourselves, to be honest with the word of God today, in the area of finances, Are we making faith decisions? I would say that in this financial time, this crisis in our nation, it's more important than ever to do finances with faith. Because we can't necessarily put our trust in the government anymore. Can't necessarily put it in Wall Street anymore. Where are you going to put it? Might as well put it in Jesus Christ. Might as well start to make faith financial decisions? Are we worshiping with our finances? Just just think of this. If we're not worshiping with our finances, there is a huge part of our life that is void of worship. Because let's be honest, money's a big part of our lives. It is for me. Is it for you? It's a big part of our lives. I mean, it really is. It's a big part. And so if we're not worshiping in our finances, there's a large percentage of our life that is void of worship. And that's not good. There emerges now in this story woven throughout the Bible of the life of faith, a heinous subplot, a heinous subplot. We see it in Genesis and we're going to see it in a moment in Mark. We saw in Genesis when Cain killed Abel because Abel gave the more sacrifice. We see this subplot emerging underneath the life of faith, which is opposition against the life of faith. Anytime somebody endeavors to live out authentic worship in their lives, they're going to encounter opposition. And this subplot begins to emerge. Opposition from those who don't want to give their lives fully to the Lord in faith. And so stop raising the bar. Let's go with the LCD here, the lowest common denominator. That was what was going on with Cain. And we'll see this again as you turn over to Mark 14. And we look at this little story real quick. Mark 14, starting in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, that's a whole other sermon. Jesus went to the leper's homes. That's, I, stop me. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some, subplot, some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. That's 11 months wages at that time. She just poured 11 months wages on the head of Jesus in worship. 
This perfume could have been sold for 11 months' wages and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could, gave her all. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Look at verse 9. This is astounding. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. Wow. I got to tell you, Jesus didn't say that about anybody else in Scripture. That's not said about Abraham. That's not said about Jacob. That's not said about David. That's not said about Caleb. That's not said about Joseph. Not about Joshua. Not about Daniel. That's not said about Isaiah. That's not said about Peter. That's not said about Paul. That's not said about John. The only person in history that Jesus said that about is this woman. Wherever the gospel, the good news of God and the glory of God goes forth, the story of what this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. From that, we begin to discern what is important to God. You see, worship takes priority over everything else. And this was an authentic act of worship before him. This is what excites the heart of God. When Jesus says that, he's clearly saying, this is the better portion. This is the way that you want to be. A couple comments about this act. Number one, this act was lavish, enthusiastic, and sacrificial. So it pleased the Lord. It was lavish. It wasn't reserved. It was enthusiastic. There was some life in the thing. And it was sacrificial. It cost her something, 11 months wages. It pleased the Lord. It was an act of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. A sacrifice, again, an act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important. Secondly, I want you to notice there was immediate opposition. There's that wicked subplot. Immediate opposition. Who did the opposition come from? We're not told here by Mark, but John tells us. John gives us some cool details in his gospel. John tells us that it was Judas. Judas is the one that said, what, 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 she, what? We could have sold that money. And, and listen to what it says in John 12, 6 about this. It says, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was in it. That's why Judas said that. The subplot, the opposition, Cain, Judas, repelled by, offended by authentic, sacrificial, enthusiastic worship. Beware of that heart. Expect that opposition when you truly give the Lord priority in your life. Here's the evidence of Judas. If you look again in Mark 14 and verse 10, and Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Stands the reason that if you don't worship God in your finances, you might betray him with your finances. 
That's the dichotomy that emerges here. And the dichotomy that's obvious also is that between self-serving and self-sacrificing. Judas was self-serving. Mary, whom John tells us this woman is, was self-sacrificing. Again, it was an act of faith because it gave God priority. It trusted God with the associated costs and it was contrary to human nature. And wherever the gospel will go forth, that which this woman had done would be spoken of in her. And, and, and that's similar to what it said about Abel in Hebrews 11.4. It said that he obtained a testimony and though he is dead, he still speaks. Because of his act of faith, his act of worship, he obtained a testimony with God, God proclaiming that he was righteous and though he was dead, he still speaks. You see, for the righteous man, death is not the end. But I want to tell you that all of your lives will speak when you are dead. Something will be said. Might not be much. It might be great. It might be awesome. But Abel had this testimony. Still speaks though he is dead because it's a simple act of worship. What is your testimony? I mean, if people look at your time and your finances, what do they discern about you? And when you die, if people were honest, and they never are when you die, But when you die, if people were honest, what would they say about you? You know, I've done a lot of funerals, maybe too many for a young pastor. I've been at funerals that were a wonderful celebration of lives of faith. Those are good. I actually enjoy those. Wonderful celebrations of a life of faith. I've been to other ones where nobody came. been to ones where nobody had a good thing to say. Both lives speak. How will your life speak? Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now we're talking about the ultimate sacrifice, just giving our whole lives. When it says bodies here, it's talking about our whole lives, giving our whole lives to God. I'll end by telling you this story. Yesterday I was sitting on the couch in my house before dawn uh, studying for this sermon. And my little Daisy Love, she's four years old, she woke up early and she came running out and she she's run, comes running out in her chonies with her pink blanket and her teddy bear and her messed up hair, and she comes running out, and she jumps up into my lap, and she's snuggling me there, and she could tell that I kind of, you know, had my mind on something, was looking at the computer screen, and had my Bible open, and a few books and stuff, and she's seen me study a lot, you know, and so she, she's snuggling me there on the couch. She says, Daddy, what are you doing? I said, well, sweetheart, I'm, I'm studying to teach the Bible tomorrow at church to talk to people about Jesus, and she says, oh, what are you going to talk about? And I, she's four. She said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, we're talking about faith and giving our best to God. And she said this, you mean like yourself, daddy? Because the only thing that God wants is you. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your things. The only thing that God wants is you. Is that what you mean, daddy? 
She's for people. (laughs) She got it. Somehow she got it. You see, we've had to talk about finances because it's inherent in the text here. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. The problem is your heart's all wrapped around money. That's why God deals with our pocketbooks. And these things, our time and our money, these things are matters of faith in which we ought to give God priority, trust God for the associated costs, and live lives that are supernatural, contrary to fallen nature. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for this instruction today. Lord, these things haven't necessarily been easy. Thank you that you have that sweet way about you, Holy Spirit, of just transforming us by grace. Thank you that you're kind and you're gentle and you're loving and you just want us. And so, Lord, we, we sit here together and we want to give you our lives. We want to offer up a living sacrifice. Help us to do that. Just dawned on me that the only problem with a living sacrifice is they have a tendency to crawl down off the altar. Some of us have been running, getting out of that place of giving you priority. Return us to your heart, Lord. Bring us back home to you. Deal with our hearts. Deal with our pocketbooks. Deal with our priorities. We say together that God, it's all about your glory and we want to live for your glory. Teach us to pursue that. Prayer team will be up here to your right and to your left. You can come and get on your face before the living God. Communion is here as well.